Imagine the sounds of uh, heaven's host in a place of perfection, without sin, without limit. The only limit will be that God is greater still, and we will know his greatness and sing of it. Thank you, praise King, for ushering us like that. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. Right after the book of Luke, right before the book of Acts. John chapter uh, 17, and I'll be reading from the uh, English Standard Version. We'll be reading the uh, entire chapter. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they believed, they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them, I'm not praying for the world, but those whom you have given me, for they are yours all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. So I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so, I've, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. You may be seated. Let's pray. God, I'm asking you for special help right now. I'm a feeble, broken sinner. One person, a grain of sand amidst the billions of grains of sand that come in and out of this world. 
God, I'm one small man. And I want you to use me as a mouthpiece to use your power and through words, show it to us. Please work in spite of me and through me and rid me of anything that would be in the way of people seeing your glory. Help me to use my limited language to make your glory known and use your word to speak out and paint a picture for us. In Jesus' holy name, amen. At this point in his uh, ministry, Jesus, Jesus, the man whom the scriptures say was not one to be heralded, was not particularly attractive, was probably a short man by most historian standards, not someone that we would look at on TV. The king of the universe is praying one of his final prayers to God the Father. And his disciples are around him, watching him, listening. And he paints a picture for them using words that they probably did not understand on the first run. Words that would take an eternity to understand. Jesus says things about himself that he has not said yet in his earthly ministry. And he says things about God that he has not said in his earthly ministry. He is showing us a picture that would take an eternity of joy to solve. And it's a beautiful thing to work on that process. In verse 1 he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And right before, it says, after he had spoken these words. So what came before? Let's look at John 16. Verses 25 through, four, through 33. I have said these things to you. This is Jesus talking to disciples. In figures of speech, the hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, Jesus could have left them with that. That would have been sufficient to grant them comfort. The king of the universe, the one who breathed out creation, tells them, I have overcome the world. I'm leaving for a little while. I'll come back. I've got you. You're fine. But Jesus doesn't leave it at that. Jesus says, I'm going to leave this earth, and before I leave, I'm going to open heaven just a little bit so you can see your future. And that can add to the comfort I've already given you. I'd be fine if Jesus himself looked at me with his piercing eyes and said, Take heart, I have overcome the world. But he opens it more. And that's what we're about to see. Picture it. The disciples around him. He talks to them, comforts them, and then he turns. And he looks up. Now in the Old Testament, you weren't supposed to do that when you prayed. Not unless you were holy. But Jesus, fully God, fully man, looks up, looks up to heaven. We don't know if it was day or night, but he looked up, and there must have been some type of radiance about him. 
He lifted up his eyes and said, I've talked to the disciples. Now you guys get to watch while I talk to him. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Now keep it known that what we've read, this is, this is dripping red. This is red letters. This is fudge made of Jesus' blood and purpose. It would take endless amount of sermons to try to expound on every single point in here. So I want you to know I'm not going to try to do that. You probably saw me thinking this is going to take four hours if he tries to explain every little word. But this is a statue, a beautiful statue. We're going to look at it from one angle today. And that particular angle, that particular lens I want you to see as we talk about Jesus saying, glorify me, and they may be one, that angle is this. The basis for our fellowship is God's fellowship with his Son and Spirit. And the glory that they share is, in fact, the very reason we exist. So those two binary lens, I want you to put on this. The basis for our fellowship together, the reason we can have unity and oneness, is because our Maker, God, has unity in Himself with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And then, on top of that, their glory, that indescribable and calculable pleasure they share together, is our goal. That's the lens we want to look at. When he says, glorify your son, that the son may glorify you, in verse 1, he is not being an egotist or a megalomaniac. He's not being a dictator, demanding glory from people. The son is in all humility, in all humility, on his way to sacrifice himself for his creation. And it is not a contradiction conflict of interest, that as he's on the way to sacrifice himself for the people he made, he asks to be glorified. This is why it is not selfish that Jesus asked God to glorify him, to big him up, to give him props, to shine on him. This is why it is not selfish, because Jesus is in fact God. And it would be belittling and demeaning of God, the source of power and strength and glory, to not have it in himself. You don't want to serve a Jesus who does not want glory. You want power, pleasure, purpose. You want to behold him and cling to him in all of his power. We want a hero, right? Well, here it is. We want our heroes to be glorious. We want our teams, our institutions, our families, we want them to have glory and worth and meaning and pleasure and goodness and weight to them. So why wouldn't we want Jesus, the origin of all power, to have it himself? Jesus says, glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. God glorifies the Son. Feels the Son's weight and power and pleasure and loves Him and Jesus does the same for His Father and the Spirit as well. And He says, glorify me since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. Look at that sentence again. Your translation may read differently. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. God glorifies Jesus in part through giving Him authority over all flesh. Jesus has power over us. Authority. Wait. W-E-I-G-H-T. Not W-A-I-T, which means that Jesus will wait on us and we'll come to him when we're ready. It means he has weight, power, that we should come now. Look at verse 3. 
Jesus defines eternal life. Jesus says, glorify me, for I have authority over all flesh that you have given me to give eternal life to all whom you have given me. And just in case the disciples weren't sure what eternal life meant, Jesus tells them, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. When Tupac said, I wonder if heaven has a ghetto, the answer is it doesn't. Thug's Mansion, there's not a corner of heaven where we can get together and drink crystal and all this stuff. There is only one heaven with one God in all his power and glory, and we come to him to know him. Now, let's look at that word know. Because if you want to know what eternal life is, it says right here, John 17, 3. This is eternal life that they know you, God. This word know in the original language, Greek, right? It's, it's not know as in I'm intellectually aware of God. The word carries with it, gnosko, a, a sense of experience. Or theorezo is the word. It means experience. To experience God, to have eternal life is to experience God in his power. To see his glory and be satisfied and captivated by his glory. And if that seems abstract, if that seems abstract, remember what happens to our hearts, what would happen to our hearts if Louisville were in the championship this year. Now, they changed the tournament, right, so that it's no longer a bunch of bowl games. Mosquitoes Bowl and Fiesta Bowl. Now it's just one game, right? It's a playoff system now. Now, if Louisville were there, I don't know who they would play. Let's say Louisville were playing, uh, I don't know, Florida State. Let's say Florida State got there. I don't know if that's possible. I guess not. But let's say Louisville were playing a huge opponent. We'd go, and we'd see them in their glory. We would theorizo them experience them, and we would not say, I don't know why I'm here, this is not quite satisfying to me, you would be lost in the moment of Petrino and his, his coaches putting together the perfect plays for Gardner and all the, all the, the receivers, Devontae Parker would be back, we'd, we'd watch them and, and we'd watch them in their glory, their power, in their displays of athletic ability. How much more would we experience and not have trouble with seeing and enjoying God in the splendor of his glory? We're talking party. That's the word I love to use for what this is like, what heaven is like. People say Christians don't party. Yes, we will party. We don't, do, we don't get drunk. We, we, we party. There's a difference between Getting drunk and high and partying, just in case there's a distinct, there's a curiosity there. Party is me enjoying infinite power and glory, pleasure that does not end. The best sex ever can only last a few minutes. That is forever. That's eternal life. Eternal life is to know God, to see Him and enjoy Him. That's what this word know, theoretso, means. Verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father... Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Lord, have mercy. We could do an entire sermon right here, just on this verse. It is deep. This is the 12-foot pool right here. On earth, there were a few instances, remember, where Jesus demanded his glory. Remember? John's... Uh, 868, 668, before Abraham was, I am. Remember that? Jesus was humble and demanded his glory at the same time. That's not a contradiction. Even in Philippians 2, when we read that he put aside his rights for sacrificing for us, that very same passage 
tells us that Jesus was exalted in his humility, right? So what Jesus is saying is not, I've been a humble little servant doing nothing and just serving you. Now give me my treasure. I did my work. It's time for me to have fun. No, Jesus was glorious and full of worship and worth on earth. And now he's coming to see his father and be with him directly to worship him and know him. But then he throws in something very interesting. Not only does he say, I glorified you on earth, Father, through doing your work, through preaching and becoming your gospel, but I want now to be with you again like we were before. It says it right there. It says, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This whole Virgin Mary, Immaculate Conception thing, with all due respect to Mary, I'm sure she was a great woman, however old she was, teenager, she was just a vessel. Jesus didn't start with Mary. It says right here, Jesus not only didn't start with Mary, he didn't start. He has always existed. He has always existed. So this, this, this little, I, this, this little uh, idea that Jesus is sitting alongside Buddha and sitting alongside uh, Hare Krishna and different religious leaders, no, they are in a different category. Muhammad started and ended sometime in the 7th century, right? Buddha started and ended. Human being, right? Jesus did not start and he will not end. People say that Jesus is different from the other religious fixtures and figures is just a matter of quantity. He was just born and died at a different time. And unfortunately, we have to build our, our year system around him and say that 0 AD was when he was born. But Jesus' difference is not a matter of quantity about when he existed. It is a matter of quality. He has been God. And Muhammad is not God. Buddha is not God. Hare Krishna is not God. He does not reveal God to us. Shiva is not God. Jesus has always been, as if that does not demonstrate his power enough. Some theologians call this the pre-incarnate Jesus. Jesus before he occupied a physical body. The only difference between Jesus before he came to earth and Jesus now is he didn't have flesh as far as we know. We don't know exactly what he looked like or what it would have been like, but we do know that he has a body now. And he can literally hear us now with ears, literal, physical, fleshly ears. He is listening to us in heaven at the right hand of God the Father. He existed with the Father and the Spirit in fellowship before the foundation of the world. And that fellowship that they had is going to be and is the basis for our fellowship. Let's go to verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were. And you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Notice Jesus' authority, his acknowledgement of God's authority to save people. Jesus is not telling God, man, aren't you so happy we got 13 people to like us today? They liked us on Facebook. They're friends. Jesus said, I have accomplished the work by saving the people that you gave me. God saves. God comes, changes hearts, saves people. So if you are here and you feel a prick in your heart, do not deny it. God very well may be working on you to save you so that you can be one of these people that Jesus is talking about. God's children. 
Don't push away. Don't. Don't tell yourself, I'm going to live life and get right with God later. Don't tell yourself, I can't have fun in the life I want to have if I do this church thing. Don't reduce it down that far. You have the God of the universe who's willing to extend his hand out to you, one of a hundred or so billion people in the history of the world, and if you feel that prick, you are lucky. Take advantage of that and come to him. Turn from sin. Jesus is not a commodity. He is the God of the universe, and he's willing to save you. Respond. Respond to it if you feel that desire to turn from sin and be saved. Verse 7 says, Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. He's saying, he's saying that his words were not teachings of wisdom. He's saying his words, Jesus' words, were not quotables to put on a wall. Not merely, anyway. He's saying, my ideas are not one of a set of ideas that you can add to your book of inspiration that you can be encouraged by from time to time before you hit the club and after you get home. Jesus is saying, my words are God's words and have been and will be. Jesus is telling this in front of the disciples, remember. He's saying, they know. They know, they know. They know, right? They know that he is God. And all these self-proclaimed kings, like the one whose voice I just sang, they can speak, but they can't speak with that power. God spoke through Jesus. Verse 9 says, I am praying for them. How would you like Jesus to pray for you? You don't have to, I mean, you want your pastors and your leaders to pray for you. But the Word of God says, if you are God's child, that he is interceding for you. Jesus is interceding for you right now. He's praying for you. So don't run from him. I'll come back to him later. Verse 10, uh, or verse 9 continues to say, I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Wait. Isn't Jesus in verse... In chapter 3, verse 16, say, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Is Jesus contradicting what he said to Nicodemus? He's not contradicting him. Because right now, he is praying for those who have become God's children. He still loves the world in the sense that he has given the availability of salvation to the world, to all types of people, people of all tribes, tongues, and nations. But just because he has given his love through making it available does not mean he loves those who have not accepted it. I'll say that again. Just because he has loved people by making his salvation available does not mean that he loves them as if they have accepted it. He gave, he gave the invitation to the party, so he loves you by giving the invitation to the party. But he doesn't love you like you're at the party until you go to the party. Don't resist it. 
to have the God of the universe say that I am praying for an exclusive group of those who have become my children is not unloving of him. How could Jesus not save some? Doesn't Je- aren't we all God's children? We're all climbing the mountain. We're on different sides of the mountain, but we're all coming to the same top. Jesus does not owe us anything. If you want to obliterate and demolish some sin in your life and change your perspective and your outlook, I'll give you one question that's a nuclear bomb. You can build up from there. Do I deserve to exist? If you really think on that question, a lot of stuff will change. Marriage stuff will change. Relationship stuff will change. Finances will change. Emotional issues. You know, all this stuff will change. If you really sit and think on that question, we have dignity and worth. I'm not saying that we don't. But I'm saying that our dignity and worth, our deserving to exist, is derivative. It comes from somewhere else. And so we cannot complain that God would not save everybody. Or that there are some who walk away. Jesus here is not being unloving to say, I'm not praying for the world. Jesus is saying, I'm praying for those who came to the party. not unloving. Verse 10, it says, all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Not only does God, does Jesus ask God to glorify him, to show him off to the world, but Jesus says, I'm glorified, and you are glorified in the people we've saved. God is saving us for his glory. God is saving us to share and show off his worth and weight to us so that we can be with him. Oh, how, how, that's selfish of God. He's saving me so that I can worship him and look at him? That would be selfish if he weren't God. The only reason we get mad at people for wanting us to see their glory is because we know inherently that they're not God. But what if God asked for that? It's okay. It is a good and right thing that the God of infinite pleasure and worth asks me to enjoy his infinite pleasure and worth. What else could I do? What is better than that? I think that deep down, we still, in the back of our hearts, see Jesus as a ticket and not a treasure. I think deep down what we really want is something like a heaven without God. I think that our hearts, our sinful and two-sided hearts, love sin so much and love ourselves so much, which is the root of sin, the love of self and the rejection of God. I think we, we want that so much and we still want heaven, we still want church and a religious positive lifestyle full of sentimentality and and fellowship and all that. We want that, but I think there's a part of us that doesn't want to enjoy God's glory because we haven't really taken the time to turn away from our sin and see what God's glory could feel, taste like. And so it's so possible to be a positive person and a Christian with an absolutely inward focus. It's possible to do Christian life and miss all of this stuff about seeing and enjoy God's glory. When people hear about, oh, I just want to glorify God, be in God's presence, enjoy his glory, we say, oh, that's the super Christian. That's the person who's really in tune with God. There, there, the hands are up and all, all that. That's what we say about them. We say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but, you know, I'm going to kind of do me. I'm going to kind of chill, you know, be a positive person, you know. But that's, that's, a, that's, that's, that's a wasted life. You can be a Christian and waste your life. You can be a Christian and have such a low view of God and his glory that that you're essentially a non-believer who just happened to make it into heaven. 
We don't want that. I want to know God's glory as best I can. Enjoy it. I am perfectly fine with saying, I'm not great. I'm not going to build my little kingdom. I want to worship you. I want to see you and know your glory. As I've been a self-employed business owner, I have felt that temptation, that American dream temptation. If I make a couple moves, make a couple phone calls, do a couple things, I could build a little kingdom for myself. Got the education, got the support network, and, and so in the back of my mind, I feel that. I felt it. And it's a nasty, ugly feeling because it's no different than me building the Tower of Babel and saying, God, I'm cool, you're a good guy, but I'm, I'm going to kind of build up my own kingdom if you'd be willing to help me out, all right? Just give me a couple bricks, give me a couple thrones, I'll be good. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll chill in heaven, we'll kick it, but, you know, this is my time right now. Yeah. And that's hideous to God. That's obscene. If I do make any money, and I want to, I want to use it for his kingdom. Want to be able to take advantage of my advantage to give advantage to the under-advantaged. Because that's what his kingdom would treasure more than me just building up my own little one. Guess what? Warren Buffett and the poorest person alive are going to look exactly the same on Judgment Day. And it doesn't have to be money. Money is just one vice. One vice. It can be a lust for respect, a lust for some other glory. We're idol factories, right? We make all kinds of kingdoms out of ourselves. We build our kingdom digitally. We build it with the things we say. We love building our kingdom instead of kicking down the bricks each day and saying, I want to make room to enjoy God and experience Him, to glorify Him. And feel his pleasure. And I suspect, this is just conjecture, this is not the Bible. I suspect that the more we're willing to embrace God and his glory, lay down our kingdoms here on earth, I suspect things in heaven will be pretty awesome for those who do that. Let's keep going. Verse uh, 11. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Now, Jesus is going to repeat himself many times here. It's probably because the disciples were there listening like, the dude is talking to God, literally, and I'm so amazed that I'm going to miss some words. Maybe Jesus was just repeating himself. He says over and over again that they may be one, even as we are one, that they may know that you are in me. He says this over and over again. You think Jesus is, something's wrong with him. There's not. He's repeating the point. Jesus is saying the way that we have fellowship, I want them to have fellowship together. Here's the idea. If we are working on building our own little kingdoms, making ourselves great, then that's called competition. What happens when a husband's kingdom is set against the wife's kingdom? <laughs> Destruction. But what happens when we are together for the same kingdom? Yeah. Together for God's glory. Worshiping him. When we do that, we are one as he and his son and spirit are one. That's the basis for our fellowship. Is God in his great glory together with the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. If they can be together as one, why can't we? If Jesus is God, and he can submit to God, and God can honor the Spirit, and the Spirit can honor Jesus, if they can honor each other, and they are perfect, full of glory, each within themselves, carrying the full weight of God's power, how much more should we in our brokenness and smallness and limits be with each other and lay aside our kingdoms for the sake of enjoying God together? Verse 12 says, While I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be 
fulfilled. Jesus says, I kept them in your name. There he goes again, right, claiming his authority. Jesus is not a bobblehead that we cling to for inspiration. Jesus is the fisherman who has caught us and kept us. That's Jesus. He kept us in his name, in God's name. But then it says something interesting. It says that he guarded them. He guarded the disciples. He guarded his people except for one. And who was that one that was lost? The son of destruction, it says. Talking about Judas Iscariot, right? God, in his great plan, allowed that Judas, who was close to Jesus, close enough to kiss him, right? That Judas would fall away. God planned that. God plans our brokenness. He plans those who would rebel against him. He's in control of us. He's powerful over our lives. So if you have a Judas Iscariot, a person who's working against you, a person who clearly does not know God, maybe is fake and maybe is taking advantage of their closeness to you to hurt you in some way, God has that person under his control. You don't have to explode. You don't have to break You don't have to create conflict. You can know that if God had Judas Iscariot, the very man who sold him to become killed, God has your Judas under control. And if you are being a Judas to someone else, God has you under control. And it's time to change now. Because we all know how Judas ended. We don't want that. In verse 13, it says, But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. God does not speak and show off his glory and give his gospel to us to turn us into broken, humble people, merely to be broken and humble, but so that we would have joy in him a substantial disposition of the heart, a fullness, and a sense of pleasure in Him. God saves you for your joy. If He is saving you and and, and calling you to turn from sin, and you think that it is a burden to turn from sin, consider the joy to which you are turning and the pain which you are leaving. Nothing can compare to the joy we have in Christ. The joy, the the emotion, the the security, the self-worth, the identity that you have in Jesus, nothing can feel as good as that. And it's so sad when you see people run to sin, turn away from Jesus, say, I'm not, I'm not into that right now. I'm gonna do me. You see them playing with mud when they could be playing with God's toys, God's glory, enjoying His pleasures. He said these things. All the rules He gave us, right? All the boundaries and guidelines He gave us. That is for your joy. Got my Trinity, got my Bible, drink, towel. seen a fire before in a mansion? How beautiful it looks. The crackle and the glow while you sit there with your robe and drink a little cup of tea. (laughs) That fire brings joy, doesn't it? And did you know that that fire can only be in one place to be able to bring that joy? If that fire is in more than one place, if that fire is outside of the confines and boundaries that have been designed for it, is that joyful? That's destruction. So when God, when Jesus has spoken words about going to him and only him and and, and doing marriage his way and doing life his way and doing money his way and doing time his way, and that feels like an assault on your freedom, consider the fireplace. Those boundaries and those confines make things work right. 
you take those boundaries and confines away, you're burning down your mansion. What we call freedom in our sin is usually destruction. Freedom is not the highest virtue. God's glory is the highest virtue. I want to be free, but I want to be in God's hands more. It is not necessarily honorable if I am free to do whatever I want, whenever I want it. I want God's way. And I am broken over the times where I haven't followed. In verse 14, it says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Man, we could go all day, and I want to, but I also want to not make you fall asleep. Look at what he says. Jesus says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. They have not loved them, because they don't love you. There are things about Christianity that people who are not Christians will love. There are aspects of the Bible that are very appealing to the world in general. Very appealing. In fact, I would argue that much of the morality we have in our culture here in the U.S. is based on the Bible, right? I mean, you want to play philosophy for a second, ask yourself why murder is wrong, and see if you can answer that question without referencing God. It's impossible. You say, well, because human life has dignity. Well, how do we know human life has dignity? Because God has told us this in his word, right? Why do we protect women and children? Why do we uh, protect the poor and the downtrodden? Because that's from the Bible. So much of what the Bible says is appealing and, in fact, used by the world. But there are elements of our faith that will always and without exception butt up against what the world cherishes. The world will hate the idea that they have to be low and humble before Jesus alone. We don't like that idea because we love freedom, we want choice, we esteem those higher. Tolerance. So there's no way to solve that. And I think sometimes we get sad because we think, well, you know, let me just show them God's love and not emphasize the bad parts. Let me just kind of minimize all that other stuff about hell and uh, judgment and about, you know, being saved by Christ alone. Let me just show them God's love. That'll make them love me. You, you want to do that, you are not doing the gospel. You are dishonoring God. You might think that you're honoring God by only ever emphasizing the stuff that makes people comfortable with Christianity. But how many of you want to be told one side of the truth? We want the whole truth. And we have to be faithful to give God's whole truth as well. The world will hate part of what we believe. That's okay. And you know why it's okay? Because God himself said it's okay. How can we say it's bad if God said it's going to happen? If God said it's just part of life. So let's keep going. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world. Um, They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Jesus says they're not of the world, but I still want you here. I still want them to serve the world. Then look what he says in verse 17. He's asking God, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Look at that. Your word is truth, Jesus says about God and his great word. Jesus doesn't say your word has truth in it. Your word is true. He says your word is truth. The word he uses here is aletheia. Your word is aletheia. Your word is truth. It doesn't have truth. It is truth. That means it's the standard by which we measure all else. God's word is the measuring rod. We don't subject God's word to scrutiny. 
we subject scrutiny and human wisdom and human judgment to God's word. Yes, there are things in the, in the word of God that are hard to understand, but the most important things are the easiest to understand. His word is truth. Let's keep going. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. If you want change, if you want to be sanctified, made pure, you need this. You don't need positive inspiration. You need this. And you need a community of people who are centered around God's glory and standing on this if you want change. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only. Not just for the Christians now, not just for the disciples then. He says, I ask also for those who will believe in me through their word. Man, Jesus is dropping all kinds of stuff in little tiny sentences. He's making it rich. He's doing some fudge on us. He's saying, I'm praying also for the Christians who are going to come. And because we're here, we know that it worked. We're part of that. We're part of the people he's talking about. And he says, they will come through their word. Christians will tell people the gospel, the word of God, and people will listen and come and become saved. And that will happen generation after generation after generation. And praise God that we heard it. And now it's on us to pay it forward. In verse 21, Jesus says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. When you are saved, remember, you are given a ticket and a treasure through Jesus to be part of his kingdom, to experience his glory together with other Christians. And that is the basis for our unity. Yes, there are going to be things that Christians disagree about, and yes, there are going to be things that make it that we might not be able to attend the same church. Not us, but other, you know, ideas and beliefs and doctrines. But, deep down, I can go to my Christian brother and sister, no matter who they are, if they are a Christian, and say, we have a common basis. We have God's glory to look forward to, and we have a treasure in Christ. And I am one with you as God and His Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit are one, and that's a treasure to me. In verse 22, it says, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Does that mean that Jesus has made us as glorious as him, or as full of worth, and as, as, as deified as he is? No, but it means that Jesus has given us an element of himself. He's given us his presence and his power. You know that feeling when you come to someone you say, I know they are walking with God. That's God's glory in their life. It doesn't mean they've become God. It means that they are shining and reflecting from that great blazing sun of God's presence. In verse 23, it says, I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. What speaks to the world more than a Christian with another Christian who would normally have nothing in common with them, and yet they are together and enjoying each other's presence? That speaks powerfully to a watching world. Verse 24. Look at Jesus. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now Jesus says, not only, Father, glorify me and fill me up with your glory, Jesus says, I want them to be with me to see my glory, to enjoy me. Is Jesus craving attention? Is he insecure? No. He is, in fact, doing what is best for us. Here's a question. Can you define for yourself a better situation than being loved and known by the greatest power of all powers? You can't articulate, you can't think of a better purpose for existing. And so Jesus is giving that to you. He's saying, I want you to be with me. 
I want them to see my glory. Not just for him, for your joy. So that you can have pleasure in him. This is a good thing. In verse 25, it says, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. So Jesus wraps up his high priestly prayer by saying the love that exists between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, Jesus wants us to have that and feel that. Love rooted in glory, in God's worth, his goodness, his might, his power. And so I want to love my Christian brothers and sisters and repent when I don't out of a conviction that we share the same future, that we share the same glory. I want to have fellowship with our C group tomorrow night on the basis, not that we are from the same church, not that we live in the same geographical zone, but on the basis that we share the same future and hope that we are loved and cherished by God, that we have a party to go to, and we are merely on earth to make sure other people get the chance to attend, to turn from sin and be with him. So if you are not sure about all this, or if this seems like Christian theater to you, if this seems like a big sentimental performance, I am begging you to reconsider. Because if this idea of going to God's glory is poetic and sentimental to you, guess what? We're going to go home and we're going to watch CBS and Fox. We're going to sit and drink in the glory of our team. We're going to drink in the glory of our family at our family reunion. We're going to drink in the glory of ourselves when we log in to social media. It's very easy to use those, I'm not saying it's bad, it's easy to use those things to build up our own little glory instead of using those things as part of a life that glorifies God. We are very familiar with running to glory for pleasure, whether it's the glory of sex, the glory of self. If we can do that, then for goodness sake, we can run to the glory of God for pleasure. Just because it's so big doesn't mean that it's not beautiful. You went up to the Dallas Cowboys Stadium and patted your hand on the side of it, you say, oh, this is a piece of stone. No, you've got to step away from it, get perspective, and you see its beauty. And then you go in and experience it. So if you are not a Christian, you are not God's child, God is not saying to you, I'll wait, you know, do your thing, have fun. When you're 40, you feel like settling down. God is jealous for his own glory because he's jealous that you would enjoy it. You don't know if you'll get in a car crash today. If you want to know more about what it means to enjoy and know God as Savior and Lord, if you want to be saved, you can. We have pastors here, ministers of the word, who are able and willing to preach to you, to to, to, to kneel down with you, to get down and, and hear your story and hear your heart and talk with you about what it means to turn from sin, to turn from a life devoted to your own kingdom, and to turn to a life devoted to God's kingdom. That can happen now. It does not matter how much you have sinned. God saves murderers. He can save anybody. So if you are broken and hurting, and if you feel like this is not for you, I am begging you, don't risk it. Come. Let us talk with you. Let us show you, through God's word, what it means to have freedom and to have joy in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you, thank you, thank you for saving me when you didn't have to. I could have been born into a place where I'd never heard the gospel, and I'd die into a crisis eternity, but you chose to save me. Thank you. Thank you for saving those in this room who have professed you as Savior. 
May you work richly in our lives to speak to others so that we can all experience something better than what the world has to offer. God, show us your glory, and I pray that today some aspect, some twinkling of your glory came through these feeble and broken words. I pray that something would come through to show how excellent and superior and supreme you are as God. If there is any heart in here who is not sure, who is feeling doubts, who is insecure about whether they are a Christian, who wants to turn from sin but maybe it feels too good and maybe they're in too deep, Lord, please move in them that they would come and hear and talk to us and find out what life really could be like. Thank you, Lord, for your word. As it says, sanctify us in its truth. In Jesus' name, amen.